Hello, friends. Welcome to another ATC Double Cut episode. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about soil testing and specifically about some sampling methodology. Now, bear with me. I am going to make this as interesting as possible. This is a blog post that I did, and it's an eight-minute read according to the software that I use to make my blog. And it's an eight-minute read because these were questions that came by email, and they were very detailed questions, and I think they were important. And I understand that not everybody wants to read a blog post about soil sampling methodology. And, uh, you know, there were many times in my life when that was not a very interesting topic for me also. But it's something that I've paid more and more attention to recently. And if you'll bear with me and listen to this, I think that it may be useful for you. And you may get a few tips or ideas about how to do soil sampling in a way that is going to be most effective for making use of the test results that you will uh, be getting from the lab. So we will go through that very soon. But before I talk about that particular topic, I want to mention that yesterday I sent out the first ATC update newsletter of the year. I think in 2000. 22 last year, I think I sent three of them. So those are kind of summary emails, summary newsletters in which I include some upcoming events that I'll be participating in. And I include some of the highlights since the last newsletter of some of the things that I've written or things that I've been working on, or things that other people have done that I think are particularly noteworthy, and that I would like to recommend. So if you don't, uh, get that newsletter and would like to. And if you want to see what was in yesterday's newsletter, you can just write to me, send me an email, and I will send you a PDF or a link to that particular newsletter text. And if you want to make sure that you get the next one, be sure to go to my website, asianturfgrass.com, and you can sign up to receive newsletters there at the website. And I want to recommend two additional newsletters that I also recommended in the ATC update that I sent yesterday. One is the Substack that Chris Tritabaugh, the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club, has started. And he's been uh, writing at least one post a week, sometimes two posts, where he's talking about some of the Uh, the way that he does the work or some of the things that he's learned or some of the things that he's been thinking about recently. And I find that quite interesting. And he's sharing that information freely. And I'm sure that some of you would be interested in that. So please subscribe to that if you're interested in, in those kind of topics. And also Jason Haynes, who many of you will have read some of his blog posts from the past. Some people don't know that he's got his blog back online after it was offline for a while, but last year he put it back online and he's been writing some really, really interesting new posts. And uh, I I noticed when I went to see one of his new posts, I noticed on the website that there's now a sign up where you can sign up to receive that every new post by email also. So I did, I confirmed that it worked and I received his most recent um, 
post, which was at the time uh, that I'm recording this, the most recent post was something about supercharging your fertilizer records, which is the type of practical advice that I think some people will be interested in. And so um, you can sign up to get that by email also, because Jason doesn't use Twitter anymore. So he doesn't send out those links on Twitter. And I don't think he, he sends out the links on any type of social media. But if you want to get that information, you can get it by email, just like you can get Chris Tritabaugh's Substack newsletter by email. And I find those both worth recommending because Chris and Jason are talking about things that are practical. And they're not just doing updates like this is an update for our members, you know, we're gonna um, we need to be cart path only on hole three for a while because we're going to be doing a drainage project on hole three. It's not it's not stuff like that that is of specific interest and it's very important for a particular club, but it wouldn't be of interest to turfgrass managers around the world. And I find a lot of golf course maintenance blogs are something like that. Like our weather's been like this this week, so because of that, the grass is in this type of condition. It's it's locally relevant and locally interesting, but not generally um, generally of interest to where people would want to subscribe to that, say, if you're in Australia. But I think turf managers in Australia and in New Zealand and in South Africa and in Ireland and in many other parts of the world can get some nuggets of valuable information from Chris Tritabal's newsletter and from Jason Haynes's blog. And I will say something else that's interesting. I was thinking about this. Chris is the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club, which has been a U.S. Open venue, a PGA Championship venue, many uh, major amateur championship, uh, many major amateur championships have been played there, and also um, the Ryder Cup in 2016. And that is a famous course with a big budget and... Chris is sharing information about what is working well for him managing those type of surfaces at a very, very high championship level. And Jason Haynes is on the Sunshine Coast in Canada at a course that hasn't hosted the U.S. Open. It hasn't hosted the Ryder Cup. And I, d I don't want to say that it is a, a low budget course, um, but it it's not at the same budget level or the same expectations for playing performance as what a place like Hazeltine National would be. And so it's interesting for me that we can hear the perspective from somebody like Jason Haynes, who's managing that type of course with much fewer staff and much less equipment in the maintenance facility um, arsenal, but much less equipment available to be used and so on. And then at Hazeltine National, um, where Chris is writing about, he's writing about uh, what he's doing, managing a much larger in-season crew. And I would say his, actually his full-time year-round crew is probably larger, I suppose, than what the peak summer seasonal crew <laughs> would be for Jason Haynes. So that's interesting. And uh, I, I hope you get as much interest, as much, uh, I hope you find it as interesting as I do to hear from them about what they um, are are writing about. So um, I hope you'll subscribe to my newsletter. Again, if you're interested in that and want to know what was in it and you didn't get it and you want to, you can just write to me and I'll send you a copy 
And then you can also subscribe to it for free on the AsianTurfGrass.com website. Now, let us jump into this post, and I promise I'm going to make soil sampling and interpretation questions about OM246 and MLSN. I'm going to make this as interesting as possible, and I, um, I almost make a commitment or a promise that this will be worth your time. So <laughs> bear with me here. So... Um, this let's see just from the title we are looking at om246 and mlsn and i start this post off which is supposed to be an eight minute read it says these questions came by email so a correspondent wrote after watching the atc office hours autumn 2022 om246 review and other atc content i had a few questions this is the question I received by email. I have researched and studied two specific items, but couldn't find the exact answer to what I was looking for. Here's the details I'd like cleared up with you, how you go about your sampling. So this is something that is not so exciting, the, the sampling process, but if you don't collect samples in the same way every time, and if you don't collect samples in an appropriate way, then you won't be able to compare the results from one time to the next. And I think it's really important, perhaps more important than, uh, I think what I'm saying right here, I think is really important, okay? It's not so much the results that you get, it's not so much, for example, if you're doing uh, soil nutrient testing, it's not so important whether your phosphorus comes back as 25 parts per million or 45 parts per million if it it's not so important how we would interpret just a single snapshot in time when you do a soil test but if you know that you sampled the the soil exactly the same last time and then you sampled the soil exactly the same this time then What's really important is the way the soil phosphorus has changed. And so it, it would be really important to see um, how things change over time. And that change over time is more important, I think, than what the absolute result is. So because of that, and because I've realized that the way people sample is a little bit more haphazard than I perhaps realized. And uh, it's certainly not standardized. The way people collect soil samples is just all over the place uh, within the turfgrass industry. And because of that, and because I offer soil testing services, I want to make sure that the ATC clients are collecting samples if they want to, I can't force anybody to collect the samples the way that, that I want them to, but I can certainly encourage people to collect them in, in a way that I think makes sense. And I want to encourage people to collect samples in the way that makes sense to me. So I've recently been writing about it, and I was so glad to get these questions by email because I, I, I thought it's wonderful to answer them. So 
and I thought they would be of general interest. So the first question is, where do you start the zero centimeter mark on the sample profile for OM246 testing? That's when we're measuring the total organic material by depth in the soil. And the question is, where is the zero? And that is really important because that's kind of the whole deal is like uh, a lot of change in the organic matter is happening right in the zero, the top of the soil, the zero down to the two centimeter mark or in American inch units or for anybody in the world who prefers inches, that would be from zero down to 0 0.8 inches below the surface. So the question is, where is the zero mark? And it is something that I tried to describe in pictures. And actually, I did a research project in 2019 where many collaborators with ATC collected samples according to my instruction where they had paired samples with the verger on. The verger is the above-ground plant material. And I'm going to stop using that fancy word sometime. I, I use it by convention because in turfgrass research, if we look at research that other people have done about organic matter, it, they commonly would use the term verdure or verdure um, to mean the above-ground plant material. And so out of habit, I use the same word to mean above-ground plant material, but I could just say above-ground plant material, which I think would be clearer. Anyway, in 2019, I prepared a document in which I took a lot of pictures and I, uh, pictures of soil profiles, and I marked what I would consider to be the zero point. So I put a link to that. I uploaded this to the website. I put a link to this in the blog post, and I will put a direct link to this blog post in the show notes so that you can check it out yourself. Basically, the zero mark is whatever you would consider to be the top of the soil and the bottom of the above ground plant material. And I think on golf course putting greens, if they're frequently top dressed, you will often have some sand mixed in there. But Certainly, wherever the top of the sand is, that has to be considered the top of the soil. And so, but I'm not considering the top of the plants to be the zero point. I'm considering the bottom of the plants and the top of the soil to be the zero point. If you have thatch or if you have thatch and mat, I consider that to be part of the soil because I consider that to be below the plants. And so for me, um, I think these pictures demonstrate it. I put a couple, I put two of the pictures in the blog post, but I think in the document that I put for download, uh, I think there were about 13 pictures or, or 13 slides or 14 slides in which I described the uh, removal process. And these images that I put in the blog post have a line that marks what I would consider to be the zero point. So if you want to collect your OM246 samples in the same way that I am, then you can cut the sample for wherever the zero point is, um, or, or you can measure the zero point down to the two centimeter point the way that in the same way that I do, if you are aligning it 
with this, uh, this line that's at the bottom of the grass and what I would consider the top of the soil. The image that I'm showing right now has a little bit of thatch and mat in it. So you can see some of these stems right there. And you'll notice that the white line that marks the zero point is right at the base of the grass and it is above that little thatch mat layer. So I would like that thatch mat layer to be considered within the zero to two centimeter depth and not above it. I hope that that's clear. And I think really the pictures are the easiest way to see that. And then the next question is, do you use a standard measurement to find the zero point on all samples? And that is basically saying if I'm testing my greens and also testing my fairways, would the zero point be the same? The answer is yes, absolutely. The, the zero point for me is always going to be the base of the plants and the top of the soil. But one thing that I would do differently on fairway samples, if you're going to do this sampling on fairways or tees or approaches, and some people do, uh, I, I think the justification for leaving the grass on the sample completely goes away once we have higher heights of cut of turf and it's it's much easier to cut off the above ground plant material without uh, losing a lot of top dressing sand and without destroying the sample and without introducing inconsistency um, so uh, my recommendation for doing om246 testing is if you are doing this for putting greens because putting green turf is compressed because it's mowed so short because the sand top dressing is often closely integrated with the above ground plant material certainly at the base of the above ground plant material it should be intermingled with sand top dressing generally and it's it's almost impossible to remove the above ground plant material consistently without destroying some portion of the sample and I just say, why, why bother? Let's just include the grass on the sample. But for fairway turf and for tees and for approaches, I think it's pretty easy to take scissors and cut off the bulk of the grass. And, and so then we'd be removing the above ground plant material from the sample. Our zero point would remain the same. Our zero point is still the base of the plants, the top of the soil. And I think that makes it, um, uh, I don't know. That's the way it makes sense to me. So I, I don't want I don't want grass on the sample on on high cut turf, but on putting greens, just for simplicity, just leave the grass on the sample. That's how I recommend doing it. We can move on to question three. What sampling tool do you use, and how many subsamples per area? I find we're still talking about OM246 sampling. For OM246 sampling for total organic material, I prefer a cylindrical sampler, something like a pipe. I use a four centimeter diameter pipe, which is uh, like 1.75 inches or something diameter. That, uh, that pulls a really nice sample. Um, and I've mentioned this in the instructions the om246 sampling instructions which are also linked to in this blog post so you can download that and you can see how i do it and the reason why i prefer a cylindrical sample or one that would be circular and um well it's a cylinder the reason why i prefer it that way 
is I find it easier to consistently cut the samples at depth. I've also tried flat soil profile samplers, and I've I found the way that I was setting it up and trying to cut straight at the two centimeter depth and at the four centimeter depth, I, I didn't really like the way that I was cutting that. And for some reason, when I have a cylindrical sample and just cut straight through it, like I'm cutting little pucks of turf off, like, like little hockey pucks, um, for me, I, I'm pretty confident that I'm getting a nice sample there. Um, and that I, I'm, I'm, confident that I'm getting a good depth. And sometimes, especially if you don't have so much organic material in a two to four centimeter depth or four to six centimeter depth, if I'd have a big soil profile um, and I'd be cutting a big sample down at two to four or four to six centimeter depth, there would be a lot of loose sand. And I don't think it would stick together quite as well as a smaller uh, cylindrical sample. So I like a cylindrical sample and I wrote about that in the OM246 sampling instructions, which you can also read. Then we moved away from OM246 and started a discussion or, or questions about MLSN. And <coughs> excuse me. So the, the questions about MLSN are important. Now for MLSN, we're talking about sampling that is related to soil chemistry, to things like soil pH, soil organic matter, or, or humic material in the soil, the soil phosphorus, soil potassium, and so on. This is not testing like OM246, where we're trying to measure the total organic material at specific depths. The purpose of that is to adjust our sand top dressing. But the purpose of the um, MLSN type of testing or soil nutrient analysis, just regular type of soil testing, the purpose of that is to decide, do we need to adjust the pH of the soil? And the, um, the purpose of it is really to decide how we should adjust our fertilizer applications. So for this one, the questions begin with, how deep do you usually go? I've always marked my probe at four inches or 10 centimeters. And my answer was, I recommend exactly that depth. For turf grass, I recommend a sampling depth of 10 centimeters, unless you've got a really good reason to sample at a different depth. And a really good reason to sample at a different depth would include if you are in a region of the world in which you have a specific way of interpreting the soil test results and that way of interpreting the soil test results is designed to be done with uh, soil samples that were collected at a different depth. Now, th the reason why I'm recommending 10 centimeters is I think that that is the average depth of the root zone in low cut turf for many types of grass and many types of uses. And sometimes you'll have roots that are a little bit shallower. Sometimes you'll have roots that are a little bit deeper, but I like a 10 centimeter root zone um, because it, it often works with a lot of types of grass that you have a lot of roots in that depth. Um, I know in New Zealand, for example, a lot of the recommendations are for sampling at a 7.5 centimeter depth or something similar. So if you're 
if you're sampling in New Zealand and you know that you're sending to a lab in New Zealand and you know that your recommendations are going to be based on the samples being taken at a 7.5 centimeter depth, then that is what I would call a really good reason to sample at a depth that's different from 10 centimeters. Um, other reasons could include like you're growing fine fescue or seashore paspalum and let's say your roots are consistently like 20 centimeters deep and you um you want to consider your entire root zone depth and you you do have really deep roots in in that case sure go ahead and and choose a different depth and, and you can sample at that and i guess the other case would be if you just have really really short roots and they're only four centimeters long or something um and and you just think okay I'm going to sample it four centimeters instead of four inches. You can do that also, but I, I would rather be a little bit aspirational and, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe the reason why the roots are only four centimeters deep is because the soil pH is so low down below or something. So, um, I, I, I would like to be a little bit aspirational and, uh, sample at 10 centimeters if, if I could. So uh, just one more thing about sampling depth, just whatever sampling depth you use, for goodness sakes, please sample at the same depth every time. Because if you don't sample at the same depth every time, you have gradients in organic matter in the soil. And because you have gradients in organic matter in the soil by depth, then naturally you're going to have uh, differences in cation exchange capacity by depth. And naturally, if you have differences in cation exchange capacity by depth, you'll have differences in potassium, calcium, and magnesium, and so on by depth. So if, if that is the case, then if you'd sample at 8 centimeters one year and 12 centimeters another year, you'll get totally different results for potassium, even if the soil potassium was, didn't change a, a single bit. Uh, it's just simply by changing the sampling depth, you will change your test results. So uh, I, I assume that everybody knows this and is careful about it, but um, elements like phosphorus that are less mobile in the soil that tend to be held by the soil, they really will, will you will really find some uh, phosphorus gradients in the soil. So it's really, really important to do the same sampling depth every time. So I, 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 talk about that because I think it's so important and I hope that you understand that and will pay attention to that when you're sampling. The next question was, do I leave the grass attached? I've done it both ways and maybe haven't standardized it. So this is the a common question. Do you leave the grass and thatch on the sample and only submit the soil portion of a sample or do you include leave everything on the sample. And I used to pinch off the grass and thatch, but I don't anymore. I recommend leaving the grass and verdure and thatch attached. And I, I wrote that in the answer and I continued saying, I've also done it both ways. 20 years ago, I used to pinch off the little plug of grass and any thatch from the top of the sample, but I do not recommend doing that today. Why? Because the laboratory has standardized procedures and machines that remove this material automatically. And I put a picture there, and this is from a visit 
in March last year to Brookside Labs, and I took a, a fairway sample and passed it through the grinder and the screen. And at right, it shows the soil and the soil organic matter that passed through the screen. And that is the material that is going to be move on for further testing. This will have one scoop to be tested for pH, one scoop will be tested for a malic 3 extraction, one scoop will be tested for organic material by loss on ignition, one, um, one scoop perhaps for a Bray 2 or an Olsen phosphorus test, uh, one scoop perhaps for a pH buffer test, um, one scoop perhaps for uh, available nitrogen in the soil or uh, one scoop perhaps for exchangeable um, aluminum or something like that. So the all of the various tests that will get run on a sample as part of a complete soil testing package, you will have uh, four or five scoops drawn out of that material at right that has already passed through the screen. Now, notice that the laboratory is doing this on every single sample. They're getting rid of the grass, they're getting rid of the thatch. And I showed a picture of that at left. The verdure and thatch are removed by the screen from the sample. Those will be discarded and this material is not tested. So there's no reason for you when you're collecting a sample to remove any of this material because it will get done by the lab by a machine and I think it's more consistent when the lab does it instead of us kind of uh, violating the sample before we before we send it to the lab so that is my recommendation my recommendation is for consistency I prefer letting the screens at the laboratory remove this material from the sample rather than trying to do it myself Sampling is actually faster this way too, but the main reason I do this is for consistency. The next question was, dry the sample before sending. I've never dried them first. That was the question and statement. And I've had some blog posts about this, some ATC double cut episodes about this. I'll read my answer to this. I said, I recommend drying soil samples immediately after removing them from the soil. Soil is alive and dynamic. When there is soil moisture, microbes are active and ion exchange reactions still happen. To keep the soil as close to the condition it was when the sample was removed from the soil, I recommend drying the sample. The sample will be dried once it gets to the lab. Why allow biological activity and chemical reactions to continue for an undetermined duration of time between the time the sample is removed from the soil and when the sample drying process begins at the lab. I've put a link in here to a blog post that shows how much mineralization can occur in just a few days in samples that are not dried. And I, I just think it makes sense to, to keep the sample as close to the condition it was when it was removed from the soil instead of allowing biological and chemical reactions to continue happening until the undetermined time at which the, the sample is dried at the laboratory. So it makes sense to me to spend a few extra days and let the samples air dry. Don't heat them up. Don't put them in an oven. Don't put them in a microwave or anything crazy like that. Just put the samples in on an open piece of paper or in an open box like a uh, uh, some kind of 
a baking dish or a box, a low-sided box that's shaped like a baking dish or something like that, or in uh, paper bags that are open. Um, but really, I, I prefer putting them on a piece of paper or something that doesn't have so many sides, because when that happens, when air movement passes over those samples, they dry pretty quickly. So that is my recommendation, and uh, I... I think there's a lot of good reasons to dry the sample. In addition to that, if you happen to be sending samples a long distance and you're concerned about the shipping cost, then your shipping cost will be reduced when you send samples that weigh less and don't have water in them. <clears throat> Moving on to the seventh question. The question is, is it necessary to mix the sample to make it homogenous before bagging, or will the lab do that? Now, um, this assumes that you're taking a, a composite sample, and the short answer to this is yes, you must mix the sample if you are taking subsamples, and then from those subsamples, selecting for yourself a representative composite sample to send to the lab. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read the fine print in all of the soil test instructions, soil test instructions that come from uh, universities, generally they're going to say something like, take a minimum of 12 samples from the area. So each sample would be a single probe stuck in the ground to the depth that we want to sample to. And they say put all of these, so each of those are subsamples. So you put those subsamples into a clean bucket. So let's say we have uh, 12 subsamples put into a clean bucket. That's way more material than you need to send as a sample to the lab. And the next recommendation is, or the next instruction in the fine print that I think a lot of people don't read, is you're supposed to mix that together and homogenize it. And from that, you, you're then supposed to scoop out a sample that is the required sample submission size, which is usually about uh, a pint or something, something like uh, 200 cubic centimeters or 250 cubic centimeters volume of material. And then you're supposed to send that to the lab and that is supposed to be a representative sample. I think what most people in the turfgrass industry do, they don't, they don't mix it all together in a clean bucket and take a sample from it. They just take all of those subsamples and send it to the lab. If you send 100% of the material to the lab, then what's going to happen is the lab in their grinding and screening procedure, that procedure is going to homogenize the sample. But um, if, if you're not sending 100% of the material to the lab, and if you're doing it by following the fine print of what the typical sampling instructions are, then yeah, you're supposed to homogenize it yourself and you're supposed to draw a subsample out of that. Now, I put a link in there to a uh, document about composite sampling. There's all kinds of links in here to additional information because this is a topic I've been studying and writing about a little bit. So there are is plenty of material if you're in uh in a place where you have a bit of time now if it's winter in the northern hemisphere and uh you're in a part of the northern hemisphere where it's cold and maybe there's not so much turf grass management going on right now then perhaps this would be something that would be interesting to study question number eight I recently heard Micah's preference for simply taking one cup cutter size sample 
rather than taking subsamples. In this scenario, how would you answer questions one to four? I, um, I think that's a slight misunderstanding. And I wrote that. I said, that's a slight misunderstanding about my preference. I do not recommend a cup cutter size sample. A cup cutter would collect way too much soil. I currently suggest to ATC clients that they submit a single core sample if they are comfortable with this type of testing. I personally use a three centimeter diameter core sampler for soil nutrient samples. That would be about uh, 1.2 inches in diameter. The single core sample needs to be sufficient in volume to meet the laboratory's minimum sample requirement. I also put a link to where I've written about this type of sampling and um, I will explain why I prefer this method here, but you can also read about it if you have time and if you're interested in that. And if you take a three centimeter diameter core to a depth of 10 centimeters, which is the recommended sampling depth, according to me, then you get 70 cubic centimeters of material. That would be about uh, a little bit more than one fourth of a cup. And that is plenty of material. This is ample material for most of the standard soil nutrient analysis packages one might have run at Brookside Labs. Now, if you're using a different laboratory, they may request more material. But for Brookside, um, we're going to be absolutely fine with 70 cubic centimeters of material. Now, why, why have I recently been recommending doing a single core sample? Well, the problem is when you follow the conventional advice, which is to take composite samples and to take a minimum of 12 subsamples and then mix them all together. And from that mixed homogenized set of subsamples to draw a sample out of that and submit that to the laboratory. The problem we have with that is we lose any assessment of the variability. And if we're trying to sample, if we're trying to just take one soil sample and get close to the average and try to figure out what the average is, then maybe it makes sense to do composite sampling. But I don't think that we're really trying to find the average. We're trying to find the areas that are too low and too high. And if you think about what we're really trying to do with soil sampling, for the purpose of making fertilizer recommendations, we would like to know the areas that are too low and too high. And once you do a composite sample and you take all these subsamples and mix them together, now we're not testing any individual areas that could be low or high. It all gets mixed together. So any area that was high in phosphorus will get mixed together with an area that was low in phosphorus and you lose both the measure of how high it was and you lose the measure of how low it was. And all you get is something that is the average. And I, I don't think that that's the ideal way to do the testing. And, it, and we end up losing a lot of information that would be actually useful. And I've done a lot of comparisons of this. I've done um, a comparison of what the fertilizer recommendations would be because my big concern with this, with single core sampling, is that we would miss uh, some deficiency assessments. We would miss some areas that were too low 
and we would under-recommend fertilizer. That would be the risk. The risk would be if this testing method would lead to us missing areas that needed fertilizer and we didn't recommend it because of the sampling method, and I have not found that yet. So generally, the recommendations will be quite similar, but you have the benefit by doing single-core sampling of much more rapid, much more enjoyable soil sampling, spending uh, a couple minutes doing it instead of hours. And in addition to this, you're actually capturing more of the variability. You're getting more precise results because you're not mixing together different soils and, and, uh, and then you can't really tell how low it was or how high it was. And in addition to this, um, well, yeah, I mean, theoretically, uh, long term, you'll be able to check uh, the lows and the highs uh, much better by doing this method. So I like it. It's very unconventional, but we've been getting great results with it. And uh, uh, I, I suppose I'll be writing some more about it. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can also uh, write to me and we can see if we can do some testing like that for you. Uh, the final question was, does Brookside Labs have an MLSN report template that they use to send your results? I've been receiving the BCSR percentage, the base cation saturation ratio percentage still on mine. The answer is no, they do not have an MLSN report template. And I don't think it would really work to have one because to make an MLSN fertilizer recommendation, to interpret a soil test using MLSN, we need to know the expected plant use and for how much time we're making the recommendation. I generally make the recommendations for one year and um, we need to know what the expected plant use is over that time. And the expected plant use is dependent on what grass species we have, how much nitrogen is applied, and how you want to manage the turf. So the MLSN recommendations are, are very site-specific and customized based on the expected plant use. So you can't just have a MLSN template. I've actually seen quite a few other soil test reports that are not done by me, but they're provided by other labs or other people or consultants or companies and sometimes they'll have like an MLSN column or something and I'm not I don't know quite what they're doing but that's not the way that I think you really do MLSN I mean MLSN is about making a fertilizer recommendation it's about interpreting a soil test and and making a fertilizer recommendation for it and we need to know plant use we don't just want to look at whether you're above or below mlsn because if you're above mlsn and you're growing bermuda grass in bangkok and your potassium is at 50 parts per million well within about six weeks or something you're going to be below mlsn if you don't apply pot potassium so uh you don't there's no way on a template to just say okay 50 ppm is fine because it's uh, yeah, you're fine today, but if your grass is alive and it's using potassium, you're pretty soon going to be below MLSN. And I would rather not be growing potassium in Bangkok um, with my potassium way below MLSN. So if, if the soil potassium was below MLSN in Bangkok with uh, Bermuda grass, I'd still like to be applying a little bit of potassium to make sure that the grass is always supplied with enough. So I've got a sample report also available for download where you can see how those results are presented and this is a very long post it is a um uh 
a, a long post about a topic that's a little bit dry. And I hope that when I explain this, that it makes sense why I answered those questions the way that I do. And as you go into what I know in North America, a lot of people do the soil sampling in the spring. There was a pace turf survey uh, about a year ago, and uh, that pace turf survey found that the vast majority of turfgrass managers in the United States are sampling in the spring. ATC does a lot of soil testing for clients in Japan also. Japan has a huge golf industry with uh, a, a couple thousand golf facilities in a small country. And uh, there, it's also common to do the soil sampling in the late winter and in the spring. So um, if, if you're going into the sampling season and you want to make sure that you're getting the best information from your soil test results, I would encourage you to consider the sampling method, the sample depth, um, the, the way that do you dry the sample, do you pinch the grass off the top or do you not? All of these things, um, you can at least start now. Even if, you, if you've done it differently in the past, I would encourage you going forward uh, into the future to make sure that the samples are comparable year after year after year. Try to standardize it, and I would encourage you to standardize it uh, in, in this way. Or if you have strong disagreements about it and you think that other ways are much better, I would be happy to hear about that also. I appreciate everyone who has listened on this dry topic all the way to the end. If you have listened all the way to the end, you might like to rate or review this podcast. You can give it a five-star rating and, uh, and that will help other people find it, I believe. If I go to some of the podcast, um, the podcast apps, and, and uh, I go to this particular podcast or other turfgrass related ones. It shows at the bottom, it shows you might all, if you like this show, you might also like these ones. And I think if you rate and review, that helps other people to discover this. So other people may find this and find it useful. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for your interest in these topics. For ATC from Yantikau, Thailand, I am Micah Woods. <laughs>